Hey everyone, this is Chad, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to our Easter service. I know that for many of you, Easter seems like a really long time away, but it's not. It's coming up on April 12th, and I hope you'll consider celebrating it with us. I really like our Easter service. It's a cool blend of modern and traditional, and it's followed by a really incredible brunch that's catered by a catering company here in Wilsonville called Wilsonville Catering Company. I would love to have you join us, and you can learn all the information that you need to learn in order to do that by visiting wilsonville.church slash easter that's wilsonville.church slash easter if you'll head over to that website and you'll let us know that you're coming then we will have a special gift waiting for you at the easter service an easter basket of sorts and we'll make sure that we do everything we can to make your visit as comfortable as possible so please head over to wilsonville.church slash easter to learn more and hopefully let us know you're coming again thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon I hope that it helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Hi, everybody. Um, How you doing? I'm back, and I have new batteries. I probably look like a different man from the first time you saw me this morning. Uh, I want to just say at the beginning that we're going now into a new series of sermons on the words that Jesus said from the cross. And this this is going to be a heavy series, but sometimes when we think of heavy, we, we think negative and and I think this series is anything but negative I think it's the most positive series one of the most positive series of sermons that we can possibly do because as we look at the words of Jesus on the cross we're going to discover I think uh, some things about his heart and about the way he views us and about what he did for the world and all of it is is the greatest news. Every year at the beginning of Lent, we start a new sermon series uh, that really just uh, hope uh, draws our minds to Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, uh, oftentimes what Jesus taught, how he lived, all of those things. And I'm really excited about this one because as we look at the words he said as he, as he was nailed to a cross, we really do, I think, begin to learn some important things about Jesus. And man, this first one might be the best. It might be all downhill after this. So I'm glad that you came today because the first thing that Jesus says from the cross is, is stunning and incredible and uh, you know, it doesn't almost make sense to our logical minds because it's so gracious and, and good. And I would just say from the beginning of this thing that, uh, that these words are really what changed my life. And It wasn't this passage of scripture, but it was an understanding of these words. Nothing has changed my life more than the understanding that Jesus has forgiven me for my sin. Uh, If you've been around for a while, then you've heard my story, but I became a Christian when I was four years old, but what Christian meant was, you know, arbitrary. I understood that Jesus in some ways could keep me out of hell. That's that's the sermon I gave my life to Jesus through. Uh, It was actually a tape, Uh, like just, I don't want to go to hell. Jesus died for me. That sounds good. And from four to 17, I had that understanding. I knew that Jesus was good for me and that he helped me and that he was with me and uh, those were all really important things to my childhood but at 17 I I knew that I wasn't living very well and I felt like I needed to tell somebody that And, uh, and and I did and then I got home that night and I realized that I 
I didn't need to tell some person those things that I was doing wrong in my life. I needed to tell Jesus. And for really the first moment in my life, I, I realized how much of a sinner I was, how many things I had done wrong. We all know that we do wrong things, but I realized just how deeply I had rejected God and what God wanted from my life. And then out of that, I realized how amazing it was that Jesus would die for me. I believe as we come into this sermon today that there's two types of people in front of me. One, people who have never been forgiven by Jesus. You've never understood the forgiveness of Jesus. You've never embraced the forgiveness of Jesus. You don't really even know what it means to have your life changed by the forgiveness of Jesus. And two, people who have been forgiven, but they've forgotten just how incredible a gift it is. And I think at the beginning of Jesus' time on the cross, the very first words out of his mouth, they speak to us about how incredibly forgiving he is. And my hope this morning is that we would be drawn back to a place uh, where we are excited, where we are passionate, where we are uh, worshipful because of the forgiveness that Jesus has given us. Or if you have never felt that, that you would feel the forgiveness of Jesus this morning. Um, here, here's the point for today. It's very simple doesn't rhyme, not that cool, but it's amazing at the same time. It's this, Jesus wants to forgive you. Jesus wants to forgive you. That's what we read here this morning in the first passage of scripture. Now, before we jump into this, I just wanna just give a, a broad overview quickly about these seven sayings that Jesus utters from the cross. Maybe you didn't know there were seven things that Jesus said from the cross, but there are seven things that are recorded for us in the New Testament by guys that knew Jesus that Jesus said as he was hanging from the cross. There's this incredible book called Gold from Golgotha which says he spoke several times a complete interpretation, not a word too many or a word too few. Uh, that book is getting at something that I, I think is important for us to understand in this series. I believe that Jesus lived a very intentional life and as he hung on that cross, I think the words that he uttered were very intentional and we'll see that beginning this morning and going all the way until Easter. Uh, just by way of interest, I, I found this interesting, you might not, but the first three sayings are said before the world goes dark. Uh, the middle saying, and we're gonna come back to this when we get to the fourth week of this sermon series, is said during the darkness. Maybe you don't know, but the world went dark as Jesus hung on the cross. And then the final three sayings come after the, the darkness was gone, the light had returned. Interestingly, and connected to what we've already said this morning here at church, the first, fourth, and seventh sayings of Jesus from the cross are prayers. So he hung on the cross, he felt it important to pray. And, and here's the other thing about this. We, we have to understand the situation, the scene, if we're going to really understand what Jesus says. And, and so today, I, and in every one of these sermons, I want to focus on the words, but, but every time I'm going to remind us, to show us, to teach us, to read to us uh, about what was happening as Jesus uttered these words. And so today, we'll, we'll really look at Luke 23, 34, but I want to begin in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Jesus had been arrested, if you don't know the story. He had been illegally tried. He had been beaten. He had been scourged. He had been uh, beaten some more. He'd been mocked. And, and then he'd been forced to carry his cross, the crossbar of his cross, to the place where they were going to execute him. 
And he gets there and Luke tells us, and it's just so simple but it's so important, that, that two criminals were being led to die with him. Uh, we'll meet these criminals at least partly next week in, in the sermon or the words that Jesus says because he interacts with these criminals. But for today, it's just important, I think this is what Luke wants us to see, to recognize that Jesus is dying with criminals. We don't know what kind of crime they committed, but we do know just because they're being executed that they committed a crime that, that the Roman government saw as a threat to the state. We can guess that they were violent criminals in some way. And they are the ones being executed with Jesus. Jesus is being executed with them. It's a staggering scene because Jesus, this is what we believe as Christians, never sinned. He never did anything against God. But on top of that, he didn't do anything that should have caused the Roman government to want him executed. And you could go a step further and say he didn't do anything that the Jewish people should have thought worthy of execution. Jesus spent his life teaching people. Jesus spent his life forgiving people, healing people, helping people, taking care of people. He spent his life doing good. And now Luke sets up the scene of his crucifixion by saying he, the one who only did good, is being executed with two violent criminals. I think it's important to pay attention to that. Jesus had been tortured so badly, by the way, I think this is important, that he was unable to carry his own cross to this place that he is going to be executed. A man named Simon had to carry his cross for him. Jesus is exhausted. He has been tortured, he'd been beaten, and he'd been mocked, and he had been brutally, brutally treated. And now he's arriving to the place where he will die with two criminals who deserved it in some way next to him. The next verse says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. The place of the skull or, or Golgotha, as you maybe grew up uh, hearing it said, is a, is a place where Romans executed people, where they crucified people. There's a debate about where this spot is, but you can actually Google Golgotha online and you'll see that the rock formation that is below it, uh, it actually has a face on it. It looks like the face of a skull. And so it may have been named the skull or Golgotha because of the shape of the rock formation that looks like a scene out of Halloween. But that's not why Luke includes this here. Luke is intending to remind us that this is a story about death. We know that, right? When you see a skull uh, on the front of a movie cover or something, you don't think, oh, that looks like a wonderful romantic comedy. You, you know that this is a story about death, that this is a scary movie, that this is a, a, a movie you don't want to watch your children with. And, and Luke includes this detail, I believe, in order to remind us that, hey, this this is a story about Jesus' horrific death for humanity. They are dark symbols of death. And crucifixion, by the way, was the most brutal form of death that the world had known up to that time. It was invented as a way of deterring people from committing crime. And so when the Romans crucified somebody, they put them in a public place in order that passerbyers would see them and go, well, I guess I'm not gonna do that. Whatever they did, I'm not gonna do that because I don't want to die 
like they died. And Golgotha was a perfect place for that, a place where people could have looked, seen the skull, and gone, I'm never going to do that. Upon arriving at this place, this place for death, uh, it says that they crucified Jesus. And I just, all of the ins and outs of crucifixion, if you look it up, it's, it's, uh, it's scary and heartbreaking and sad and um, it makes me love Jesus more. But, but just the simplest idea here, just the simplest image I think is important for us today. Just consider that they drove nails through his wrists or forearms into a piece of wood and then they did the same thing with his ankles. Without going into the nitty-gritty of how he would die and what it did to his breathing and all of that, just consider, because that's a pain that I think we can at least kind of understand, right? Just to have nail, I mean, we are being nailed. We are, we are being nailed to a piece of wood. We can, we can imagine how terrible that is. And so Jesus, in this scene that Luke paints for us, is saying he arrives at this place with two violent criminals, this place of death, and, and then they take his arms and they take his ankles basically and they drive nails through them in order that he can then be pinned to the wood that we call the cross. Now, now just, let that, just let that scene just sink in. Just think about it. Now, now consider this. What would you say? I mean, what would, what would you be saying? Would you be screaming cuss words? Would you be pleading your case? Would you be calling down curses on these men and women who are responsible for your death? I mean, I, I mean, I, I <laughs> when I stub my toe, I want to yell every swear word I know. I don't. I'm a pastor, but I want to. I mean, what would you be saying? I don't think it would be this, what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So much in this just one line uttered by Jesus. In fact, this is the easiest sermon series I've ever studied for, I think. I went to the library wanted to study this topic, and there's just book after book after book written on the words that Jesus says from the cross, like just one after another, a whole line of them just lined up waiting for me to grab them off the shelf, because it's the reason there's just so much here, and, and, and I don't want to dwell too deeply, and this is the tension I feel if I could just level with you in this series, like you can, you can do the ins and outs and then lose the beauty, right? Like you can dissect it until it's no longer alive or beautiful or stunning in the way that it should be, uh, but a few of these details are so important to us even emotionally connecting. The first thing that you have to notice is that Jesus says, Father, that's how he refers to God. It shows that despite the horrific pain that Jesus is in, despite all that he has struggled, his relationship with God has not changed at all. It's the same as it was at the very beginning of his life. 
As, as Christians, we believe in this thing called the Trinity that I will not take too much time to explain today, but we believe that God is one person in three forms, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this relationship is, is perfect and inseparable. They are one. There is a oneness. And, and when we come here, it would be easy to just question, I would think, it would be easy to question, as Jesus goes through all of this, will it cause him to pause and ponder his relationship with the Father? Has it changed? Is he angry? Is he frustrated? Is he, is he mad that he has to take this pain? And the very first word out of his mouth is, Father. His relationship to the Father has not changed. He has not become a different person. It reminded me so clearly of, of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. One of the most famous and most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, but, but, but it also leads to this question, how does Jesus feel about all this? And as he's hanging on this cross, pain running through his body, having just been nailed to a piece of wood, the first thing he declares is Father, and it reminds us that he was willingly a part of this plan to save humanity, and his relationship with God had not changed at all. If you think back to the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter four, we read this strange and interesting story about Jesus being tempted by Satan. And at two of the temptations, two of the ways that, he, that Satan tempted Jesus, it, it begins with this. If you are the son of God, from the very beginning, Satan was trying to, to tempt Jesus away from recognizing who he was and what his relationship to the Father was. But even here as he is being nailed to a cross, for sure, uh, with Satan pushing it on, egging it on, rooting for it, he continues to declare, Father, Father. We can learn from this ourselves. It's so easy when we struggle to look at God differently, right? I think in the good times when life is simple, life is easy, our job's going well, our family's good, our marriage is good, our kids are acting like, right, we can look at God and we can say, he's, he's like my heavenly father. But sometimes when things are bad, it's really difficult to see him in the same way. We look at him and we may say father, but we say, like, we think, we feel like distant God. Why are you letting me go through this? Creator, why are you allowing this? But Jesus in the worst moment still looks to heaven and says, Father. And we in our worst moments and our best moments should look to heaven and cry like in the words of Romans eight fifteen, Abba, Father, my daddy. The second thing that, that Jesus says is forgive them and we're really gonna look at this because I think that's the kind of the defining phrase in the whole thing but it reminds us that Jesus did not need to pray for his own forgiveness. Jesus didn't say, Father, forgive me. He was sinless, he was perfect. He did not need forgiveness in any way. That is what made him able, to. that is what made him have the ability to 
die on the cross for our sins. He never did anything that was against the will of the Father. He never did anything that was sinful. And so as he hangs there on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, it is an incredible reminder that he only hung there on that cross for you and for me because he was the sinless, spotless lamb. That's stunning to me. I think people at the end of their lives, no matter how long they've been a Christian, no matter you know, how well they've lived, how good they have been, there's a, there's a desire in our hearts as people face their final breaths to look at God and say, forgive me. You know, just even like, hey, we're gonna see each other in a few minutes. Let's get this out of the way. God, forgive me. But Jesus in his final moments feels no need to do that. Instead, he turns his attention to us and says, Father, forgive them. Making it even more interesting is there's no qualification for this prayer. I mean, just moments earlier, it's hours, but moments earlier, Jesus is praying in a garden and he knows what he's about to suffer for humanity. And he says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. But now there's no qualification. He doesn't say, God, if it's possible, forgive these people because he understands that the answer to the prayer lies in his own sacrifice. There is no question about whether or not people can be forgiven for their sins because of the very thing he is suffering as he utters this prayer on the cross. He knows that forgiveness is possible because the nails have been driven into his arms and his legs and so he doesn't say God if you can forgive them he says father forgive them and finally I would just point out that these words should be the cry of our hearts we can look around culture and and say God you know curse them God make them think more like me God make them more like me God fix them God help them God you know, do work in their lives. God smite them. You know, we can pray all of these things, but at the very front of our prayers, the center of our prayers should be a cry for all people. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. This has been true of the church throughout its history at the very beginning. Uh, in Acts seven fifty nine and 60, we read of the death, or the end of the death of the first martyr, a man named Stephen. He's being killed because he's a Christian and people don't want people to be Christians. And at the very end of that story, it says this, while they were still stoning him, while they are throwing rocks at Stephen to kill him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Forgive them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't know what you pray for the people who wrong you. I don't know what you pray for people that you don't like. I don't know what you pray for people that aren't like you, that think differently than you. But, but I'm telling you, the very first thing and the last thing that you should probably pray is, Father, forgive them. And when you say this, I mean, you mean, Father, forgive them in the here and now for the things they've done, but you also mean God help them to embrace the sacrifice of Jesus so that their sins can be taken away and they can be forgiven for eternity. Forgiven for eternity. But again, consider the pain that Jesus is in. 
nails haven't been driven into his arms and his ankles. Consider it again. And then just think about this line, Father, forgive them. It's so vastly different than how we think and how we feel. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this thing that I think should be true of all of us. He said about this line, if I knew nothing else of him, speaking of Jesus, but this one prayer, I must adore him. If we knew nothing else about Jesus, nothing else about his life, nothing else about his death, nothing else about his resurrection, nothing else about his ascension, nothing else about his glory, if we knew nothing else about Jesus than that he was a man who was was tried unfairly and killed unjustly and yet while he was hanging on the cross, the first words out of his mouth were, Father, forgive them, forgive these people who have done this to me, forgive those for who I am dying for then we should absolutely adore this human named Jesus. I wouldn't say it, and I'm guessing you wouldn't say it too. Jesus' statement was in stark contrast to the people of his time. The Romans saw revenge as a, as a positive thing. It was a God to them. Like you got revenge on people. That's just what you did. And the Jewish people of of whom Jesus was, they lived by the ethic eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. There needs to be retribution. There needs to be response. When somebody hurts, they deserve an equal or, or greater amount of hurt coming back to them. And here is Jesus hanging on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. Now what's, what's so beautiful about these words uh, is that a lot of people point to the verbal form of this word. It's imperfect. And a lot of people, and I, I think this is, is profound, and I, I think it's at the heart of Jesus, whether it's historically accurate or not. They say, well, well, this verbal form of this Greek word we read here, it means that Jesus kept saying, Father, forgive them. And what a beautiful picture That is, as they took off his clothes to humiliate him, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. As they drove nails into his wrists and his ankles, Father, forgive them. As they they looked up at him and mocked him, he said, Father, forgive them. And as they raised him up onto the cross so that he would die, he said, Father, forgive them. At every step of the way, Jesus was declaring, asking, saying, Father, forgive them. This is the story of the gospel. What we believe as Christians is simply that all of us have rejected God, that we've turned on God, that we've done things against the will and the way of God, that we have created in our own hearts a darkness, a blackness, a sinfulness. And out of that sinfulness, we have become enemies of God, not because he wanted to be our enemies, but because we chose to be his And Jesus, being God himself, came from heaven to earth, lived sinlessly, and then hung on a cross all so that the prayer that he prayed on that cross might be answered, Father, forgive them. We can all be forgiven because Jesus did the work that he did on the cross. Consider the people that he's saying this about that are just around him. 
I mean, just the people that are right there in, in the vicinity of the cross, the people that he has interacted with in the last several hours of his life before uttering this prayer. Herbert Lockyer, who wrote one of those books I mentioned earlier, says this, who did he plead for as the nails were being driven into his hands and feet? Well, there was Peter who denied him, Judas who heartlessly betrayed him, the scribes and Pharisees who hated him and often plotted his death and ultimately engineered his crucifixion, there were the apostles who forsook him, the false witnesses who testified against him, the mob who railed on him, imperious Herod and vacillating Pilate, the soldiers who condemned him. And Jesus says about all of these people, Father, forgive them. And here's what's beautiful about it, because I don't care much about Pilate. I like the apostles, but I don't really deeply care about them. I care about me, I care about you, and what this means for us, and here's what it is. This is why this prayer is so important 2,000 years later. Have you denied Jesus? He wants to forgive you. Have you betrayed Jesus? He wants to forgive you. Have you hated Jesus? He wants to forgive you. Have you forsaken Jesus? He wants to forgive you. Have you testified against Jesus? He wants to forgive you. Have you ignored Jesus? He wants to forgive you. Have you condemned Jesus? He wants to forgive you. What this story says is Jesus is in the presence of all of these people who are directly responsible for his death is that no matter what you have done against him because you are too responsible for his death and so am I by the, by the sins that we have committed no matter what we have done no matter how much we have rejected him no matter how far away we have gone from him no matter how many times we've used his name as a swear word or told people that we don't believe the story Jesus sits in heaven declaring Father Forgive them. Ronald S. Wallace, who wrote another book on this subject, said, here where man is at his worst, we have the son speaking to the father, and there's no talk of destruction or judgment, but only of love and forgiveness and hope. He goes on to say, I love this, our only hope is that Jesus still lives to bear the burden of our lives and to pray this prayer for us. The only hope that we have for forgiveness of our sin is that Jesus now resides in heaven, having come back to life on the third day, and that he still is praying this prayer for us. First John 2, 1 says, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If you have sinned, you have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus. And we get a picture of what Jesus is saying as he hangs on the cross and opens his mouth. He's saying, Father, forgive them. What's cool about this is that Jesus says they don't know what they're doing. And, and what's true about sin always, right, is that it's this weird mixture of ignorance and understanding. And wouldn't you agree that, that when we do things that are wrong, it's, it's partly like accidental and partly intentional often, right? Like we do, we do stupid stuff and, and we can call it a mistake later, but we knew partly inside of us that we were wrong and it wasn't right and we shouldn't have done it and all of that. And, and, and what we need to recognize this morning as Jesus, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's, it's a beautiful picture of grace, but ignorance does not equal innocence. And, and Jesus recognizes that as, as he hangs on the cross. They didn't, they didn't get it like we do. 
They didn't know they were nailing the Son of God, some of them, to the cross. The Roman soldiers probably had no idea what they were doing. They just showed up at their slightly above average paying job killing people and, and somebody said, this guy is condemned to death and they just went about their business doing exactly what they would do tomorrow and the next day after that. And in these words, they don't know what they're doing. We recognize that Jesus is just so gracious and good. But he doesn't say they're innocent. They did nothing wrong. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Peter reiterates this. Acts 3, 17 and 19. This is like the very first sermon in church history. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as your leaders, as did your leaders, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The second half of verse 34 I want to read to you because, man, uh, there's always something about these details that are important to me as I read about Jesus' death and, and like having nails driven into your arms and ankles. Like if that wasn't enough, you know, just the, excuse me, the, just how blatantly uncaring the people around Jesus were that day always touches me in a unique way. And, and so verse 34, the second half, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I think that imagery is so true for many of us who, who've heard the story of Jesus' death. We understand uh, how much Jesus sacrificed we, we, some of us, we even love Jesus. But it's like we're just standing around casting lots for his clothes. I mean, as we think about prayer, we continue to grow as a church of prayer, even just what we pray. You know, we forget to say thank you. We forget how much he's done for us. And it's like, hey, help me with my car payments. I think we can be so flippant about this incredible sacrifice of Jesus. And yet... The words are still there, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. In Acts 6, 7, we see that the Father said yes to this prayer. We read this, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And love, I love this, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The priests are the ones who were trying to get him killed. They're the ones inciting the crowd. They're the ones that took him to Pilate. They're the ones who wanted him dead for their own personal gain and their own personal power. And yet we read in, Acts, in that Acts passage 6 that, that even they, even they who directly were responsible for the death of Jesus were forgiven by embracing, embracing the forgiveness of Jesus. All of this points to one very simple truth, the simple truth that I said at the beginning. Jesus wants to forgive you. He wants to forgive you. He wants your sins to be no more. He wants there to be no punishment for your sins. And I, I should just say, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is that. It's the removal of punishment. God does not want you to burn in hell for eternity. He does not want you to be separated from him in, in relationship. He does not want you to continue to hold on to the guilt of your sin. He wants you to be forgiven. And there's only one question. Are you going to embrace his forgiveness or not? 
If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, you've never embraced forgiveness. Let me just explain what I mean by even being a Christian. It means this, you believe this story to be true, that Jesus died for our sins and he came back to life and he sits in heaven saying, Father, forgive them. And then out of believing that, you say, well, I'm a sinner. And so Jesus, I will accept your gift of salvation. It's transactional. We trade our old lives for a new life. We say, Jesus, you take my sins and you give me a clean heart and a new life and a better relationship with you, a relationship with you at all, and I will live my life for you. And there's some of you that need to make the decision to do just that. Just give your life to Jesus and embrace his forgiveness. There's one thing I know about you. You've done a lot wrong. And, and I also know that somewhere deep inside of you, you feel the guilt of those wrongdoings. And Jesus wants to forgive you. But there's a second group in front of me, and I mentioned this at Ash Wednesday. We have a very guilty church. And I don't mean like we're more sinful than a lot of other churches or anything like that. I mean, we have a lot of people who hold on to the guilt of their sins from 20, 30 years ago. And they're still in some ways trying to punish themselves for the things that Jesus has already forgiven them for. And this morning, as you consider the words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Know that he spoke them over you and he doesn't want you to hang on to your guilt anymore. Instead, he wants you to worship and glorify and love him because he has forgiven you. I think for a lot of people, holding on to guilt prevents truly worshiping Jesus. Because when we hold on to guilt, in some ways we're saying, you didn't quite do enough as you hung on that cross for me. But when we accept the gift of the cross and we let the guilt go, then then it compels us to say, well, why is it gone? Well, it's only because you hung there having nails driven through your wrists and ankles into a piece of wood and prayed, Father, forgive them that I don't have to experience that guilt anymore. And we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus more fully when we let go of the guilt that we have been hanging on to. If you fall into either one of those categories this morning, I just, I'll say it one more time. Jesus wants to forgive you, so let him forgive you. Let me pray that that will happen. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that, that we would that people here, God, in front of me, those listening online would give their lives to you, Lord. Um, I pray, God, that, that if any person that's sitting here, God, any person that's listening online, if they're not Christians, God, I pray that they would give, uh, they would become Christians and they would embrace the forgiveness that you offered as you, as you hung there on that cross, Lord. And for those in this room that hold on to guilt, Lord, um, help them to stop. Help them to embrace this prayer, God, as, as being prayed over them, not just the people who stood around the cross in the first century, but over them, and help them to feel and understand how incredibly great your grace is and how it covers all of their sins, Lord. Help them to give up that guilt for, for your worship and your love and your honor and all of those things. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.